welcome back to the Humans of IB podcast with a twist, Careers and Professional Development Edition, hosted by the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science, IED Student Organizers, Careers and Professional Team. In this episode, I will be joined by LSE Law Professor Gary Simpson. Professor Gary Simpson is the Chair in Public International Law at LSE, author of Great Powers in Outlaw States, winner of the American Society of International Law Annual Prize for Creative Scholarship, the author of Law, War, and Crime, War Crime Trials and the Reinvention of International Law, and holds many more incredible accolades. Whether you've recognized his most recent book, The Sentimental Life of International Law, Literature, Language, and Logging in Global Politics, to his amazing published works over the decades, it's a pleasure. My name is Michaela Amrislevit, and I'm your podcast host for this episode. And here I am with the Professor Gary Simpson. How are you? Hello, Michaela. Lovely to be here. How's the weather been? <laughs> the, weather's, the weather's terrific here in, in central London this afternoon. It's sort of balmy almost for this time of year. It is. I'm excited for springtime, though. I'm... Well, yes, spring is a pretty decent season, too. Yeah. It will be my first time, but um, I miss a little bit of warmth. Oh, it'll be beautiful when it comes in. Yeah. You enjoy it more because you suffered through the English winter. I have. I have. I can put and check that off my bucket list of <laughs> life goals. But You've done it. Life will be easy after this. Life will be easy. <laughs> uh, but more importantly, we are thrilled that we have the opportunity to talk to you today, given your outstanding and multifaceted professional experience in the world of international law. Um, so without further ado, we're going to jump right in. Are you big of that? Let's. Okay. Yeah. So to let the audience know, I had the pleasure of attending a port talk hosted by Good Enough College where you touched on your book, The Atomics, My Nuclear Family at the End of the Earth, and it truly touched me, and I've mentioned that before because there was so much humility, reflection, ease, and somewhat acceptance in what you were saying about the way you grew up and especially how you left um, and the movements that you made after that. And quite honestly, it's not every day that you hear stories of people growing up prepared for the world to end. It's somewhat archaic and I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more about the book and also what was that book writing process for you? Oh gosh, Michaela, that's such a good question. Uh, such kind uh, introduction too. So the book, uh, as you say, is called The Atomics, My Nuclear Family at the End of the Earth. And I guess each of those phrases has a, a particular meaning in relation to the content of the book. So first of all, The Atomics, um, comes from the term that was used to describe uh, people who moved into this very small town in the highlands of Scotland to in effect build an experimental nuclear power station and to participate in what was a sort of Cold War site. Um, so when we arrived in the 1950s, I wasn't born until the 1960s, but my family arrived, um, the locals began referring to us as the Atomics. And they described the houses we lived in as Atomic Houses and the estate, the Atomic Houses were on as the Atomic Estate. So from a very early age, I got used to being referred to as an Atomic, but I didn't really understand A, how unusual that was, and B, what it meant. Mm -hmm. But it did give you the sense that you were at some sort of technological vanguard. And it sounded quite modern and advanced to be an Atomic. So it wasn't until I left uh, this town and went south and began my career that I looked back and thought, there's something in this. There's something interesting about this term. And it seemed like the natural uh, phrase to use as the title of the book. The other two, the subtitle, 
my nuclear family. Uh, it's about my family, and of course, my nuclear family is a play on words because we refer to nuclear families as, as, as two, two parents and 2.3 children or whatever it is now. Uh, but my, my nuclear family was pretty much like that. I had two sisters, much older than me, and me. Uh, but my nuclear family was also nuclear in a more overt uh, or obvious sense in that we were in this sort of nuclear zone in the, in the north of Scotland. Uh, and then it was at the end of the earth. And the end of the earth is also a sort of double entendre or a play on words because I, we were at, pitched at the end of the earth geographically. You know, I, I looked out my bedroom window and I saw Orkney. And I mean, Orkney is so remote, it sometimes doesn't even appear on maps of Britain in the far north. Um, but I was also, as you pointed out in the introduction, sort of experiencing a kind of end of the worldness at the same time. That's incredible. And it's, again, like I said, it's very unique. And I also wanted to touch on when you left, how old were you? And where did you go? How did you um, come from this very tip of the north of the United Kingdom? And what adventures brought you to um, maybe undergrad? Or where did you go after? Were you trying to maybe um, escape this environment? And like how that molded you at this very uh, pivotal point of adolescence? When did I leave? This is a difficult question in some ways because it encompasses both when I f sort of finally left and also when I first left, as, he, as in when I first looked at other places or visited other places. And the, the two aspects of that I remember very distinctly was one, my father took me to London when I was quite young. Uh, I found it sort of overwhelmingly exciting. We, we had a completely cliched visit. You know, we went to HMS Belfast, we went to Shaftesbury Avenue, the Imperial War Museum, Buckingham Palace, you know, we just ticked off the great London icons. But I loved every minute of it, and I think I had a sense that I probably wanted to end up in London at some point. Um, so that was one departure. Also, my family's Italian, so I have Italians on both sides, and my parents um, they actually went to uh, Venice on a holiday when I was quite young. It's very unusual for people from up that far to go overseas or to the continent, as we called it. They went without me, and I was, I was very agitated about that and insisted that they take me the next time. Um, so they did. About um, two years later, in 1970, they took me to um, the Adriatic coast of Italy. And that was also rather transformative partly because I'd never been anywhere where it didn't sort of snow and rain all the time. Right. So when I was packing, my, I remember my mum coming through and saying, you, you know, you, you won't need all those, sweat, all those sweaters yeah. and, and raincoats that you're packing into your suitcase. We're going to a hot country. I, didn't, I couldn't conceive of a hot country, mm -hmm. uh, a country where you could just wear a T-shirt outside. It seemed, seemed ridiculous. So, so those were all, those were sort of formative experiences. Um, but I eventually left uh, to go to the closest university, which was Aberdeen University, but still you know, five or six hours away. There was a train that, that, that took you south from, from, from this town, Thurso, to Inverness, which most people think of as the most northerly point they can imagine on the British mainland, but it was in fact five hours south of Thurso. But you had to go through this junction called Georgemus Junction, uh, and, 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 and the train would go south and, and end up at George's Junction, and then briefly it would go north again to pick up another train coming south. 
So there was this moment where you thought, I actually can't leave this place. It's impossible. You're always being dragged home, as I always have been and as I am in a way in this book. I used to travel with, with, with groups of tourists. I'd see them looking panicked as the train went backwards, as if something had gone terribly wrong. But I knew the dark secret of George Miss Junction. So, so getting out seemed problematic. But once I had left Thurso, I didn't really go back. For, I went to high school reunion at one point. But I then began to sort of pursue a life. And since then, I've sort of, in a way, been heading south or west. I went to, I went to North America mm-hmm. as a graduate student. And then I headed south to Edinburgh and then Melbourne. You can't get any further south That's than true, that. Yeah. And I've sort of wound up in, um, in London, which actually feels relatively close to this place. Anyway, yeah. I... I find it interesting that at this point where um, it seems like you're, I, I won't say the word escape, but it's like, you know, between you, this, this junction that you talk about, and then um, this, it's like this odd space and pause in time where like you've escaped, but you've not. And then like, you've also with writing this book have um, gone back somewhat to your childhood. And on that note, I actually went to Aberdeen, um, I think in December and, uh, I will say the trains, it, there was a lot of transferring of trains, transferring of trains, long train rides. But I will say yeah. looking at the at the coast is such an incredible and beautiful sight uh, yeah. I, when I went. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the childhood, just to go back to your first point, childhood is sort of inescapable, I think. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 we sometimes we try to release ourselves from the chains of our family upbringing or, or childhood or whatever. But uh, I think we're always drawn back somehow in some sort of tragic, melancholic way. But you're right about the, the, the coast is, is really starkly beautiful. Much of it is quite, um, quite empty. I took someone up to Scotland once and we drove down this road and at the end of the road, it was absolutely stunning, the, the scenery, and she was commenting on the scenery all the way. And as we got to the end of the road, there was a sign saying, um, scenic route this way and she said to me you mean this wasn't the scenic route we were on so you know it's, it, it's yeah. all scenic it's impossible to avoid scenery even if you become completely sick of it you're you're right and that's 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 funny actually scenic route this way um taking this this moment of your childhood i want to know um what drove you to pursue pursue your career in international law um, were you influenced by directly your childhood? Um, were there any main aspirations for you? I think I was, because strangely enough, I grew up in a town where an international organization was very, very present. I mean, most people, you know, when they're growing up, they hear about the, 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 the local library or the town council. And I heard about those places, but I also kept hearing this phrase, the International Atomic Energy Authority or the International Atomic Energy Organization. So I, was, I remember thinking this was just a bit like the local library or the co-op. It was just one more institution that was sort of part of my life. And it wasn't until I did international law at Aberdeen University that I heard about this organization again and made the connection between the th- me growing up and this whole repertoire of international legal institutions and a thing indeed called international law. So I feel as if I sort of grew up to a certain extent I wouldn't want to push this too far, but to a certain extent, amidst 
international law, and in particular amidst the Cold War. I felt very, I very, I felt very close to the Cold War. I was sort of close to the Cold War, quite literally, because it was at the margins of the NATO defense area, I suppose, up there in Thursday. There were early warning sites. There was an American base. I mean, I say at one point in the book that I had a, I had an Amero-Soviet childhood in the sense mm -hmm. that there were lots of Americans around. I was very influenced by Americans um, while I lived there. But we also lived a very Soviet childhood. When I saw a TV program called Chernobyl recently, I, I pointed at the screen and said, that, that was my childhood. It was so similar to that sort of regimented Soviet way of life. But you want to get onto international law and uh, international development and not hear so much about my childhood. So um, it was all like many careers, uh, and maybe this is not striking the right note for your podcast series. It was just a series of uh, accidents in a way. I mean, I, on one hand, um, I just met, kept meeting people. You know, you, you sort of, you go to things and things happen. I think that's why even when I don't feel like it, I go to things. Because you meet somebody who says, you know what, have you tried this bar or have you gone to this restaurant or have you tried this international organization? And you end up sort of pursuing a career. So I had a very influential English teacher at school. Um, Sandy Stewart was his name. Um, and I, he, he asked us to come up with sort of essays we might want to write. And, and I suggested irony in the lesser works of George Orwell. I mean, I have no idea where I came up with that. But I've actually applied the idea of irony to war crimes trials in some of my recent work. So that still has an effect on what, what, um, what I do. But then at Aberdeen University, I met, I met an inter international lawyer who I really liked, um, went on to become an ambassador for the British Foreign, wow. foreign Office, um, John Rankin. And, and he also encouraged me a lot and told me about a scholarship they had to go to Canada for a year, um, you know, fully paid. I thought, why not? Yeah. Um, so in that sense, there were there were a few sort of accidents. It wasn't like cold-eyed ambition. I didn't sort of begin jotting down some career ideas at fourteen, uh, as I watched Doctor Who or whatever, and then slowly pursued them rigorously to get to this point. It was far from being that. I, I like the way it, when you when you mentioned that my first thought is it seems like you tripped into international law in the most um, graceful and influential <laughs> way and I want to touch on that aspect of your career especially in the 21st century and more importantly as I might say there's this uh, exhaustion of both turmoil and innovation within the 21st century and there's been such an international sh shift since the Cold War between conflicts geopolitics climate law um, IDP, so on and so forth, war crimes, and you know, it makes me grapple with the effectiveness of the international governing bodies like the ICC or the ICJ, and clearly I cannot um, say that I was born in the 20th century, and I want to know what has changed since the 20th century with the end of the Cold War, and has that same form of uncertainty um, with international law persisted into the 21st century? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, there were sort of three periods, weren't there? There was, the, there was the Cold War, which was regarded by some people as, uh, and was, you know, an extremely dangerous point in human history where the possibility of obliteration hung heavy in the air. But it was a very hopeful period as well. There seemed to be a lot of revolutionary possibility around, both in local politics 
<coughs> in international law um, and, and to a certain extent in global politics. So after all, this was the era of decolonization through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So it was a paradoxical time in a way. It was, it was frightening but hopeful is how I would put it. And then at the end of the Cold War, um, things seemed much less fearful. And initially, there was a huge amount of enthusiasm uh, for international law. There were lots of international organizations created in that, in that sort of what will be looked back on as a golden period of institutionalism. The, I don't know, the WTO, um, the International Criminal Court in 1998, that sort of period at the UN. I was there at the UN at various points during that period and participated in the ICC negotiations. And there was a lot, there was still a great deal of sort of post-Cold War energy around. Um, so I guess what's happened then is a, is a sort of sense of disappointment or anticlimax or the return of, of fear in a different, different mode. But I mean, there remain elements of, of hope around the world. Um, not all inter international organizations are in decline after all. Um, international law still has a huge sort of influence on the way things are. Um, young people seem just as energized as my generation to sort of change, change the world, change the governing norms and rules, and to think positively, even in very difficult circumstances. Okay, yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, just to clarify, you worked in some form with the International Criminal Court, the ICC? Yeah, And yeah. Um, what did you do exactly? I was a legal advisor for the Australian government, and I went to the UN Sixth Committee a couple of times, and then went to Rome, where they negotiated the, the treaty. So that was useful for me as a scholar, for example, because I got to see exactly how things worked at a, at a sort of informal, sort of slightly meat and potatoes level. You know, it's it's quite fancy at some in some respects, to be a, um, a professor at the LSE, there's a danger that you start to feel a bit sort of above it all, superior. Mm. Um, but the LSE is committed to understanding the causes of things. And it, it, it's sort of committed to a, a public policy intervention. I mean, it begins in that mode with that sort of Fabian spirit of the Webbs and George Bernard Shaw. So it, it, it sort of combines um, that a very powerful sense of its social and political role within the state and internationally uh, combines that with you know very high status. Okay. Yeah. Um, within you mentioned Rome and um, how this aided in some form of your academia, and I am in actually a little interested into only a little interested. <laughs> a minute interest. Um, <laughs> Um, trying to see if like, you can talk or mention about any specific cases or um, policies or whatever relates or situations um, where international law has played a crucial role in addressing war crimes um, with what you might have worked with or that was around that circle and uh, internally displaced persons as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good question. It's a mixed picture, isn't it? I, I suppose one thing I would say is that, like everything else, like the National Health Service or, or whatever, you don't really hear about its successes very much. Um, you know, a woman shows kindness to husband isn't isn't a headline you see very often in the papers. And likewise, you know, the the, the headlines the, the headlines that you never hear 
are the ones where sort of international laws operating successfully. Um, so I, I would say that there's quite a bit of compliance in the system. Um, but the question is, are there any serious crises where international law has done some good? Well, I suppose every time a case or a dispute is settled before the International Court of Justice, for example, there is the possibility, at least, that there's also been a war averted. So even one successful case in that respect feels to me like a, like a triumph. And I, I suppose international law as a sort of legal diplomatic language is always doing that. And yet, we tend to only confront it in moments of failure. So people say to me, you know, what's the point of international law? The Israeli bombing of Gaza continues. And my response to that is partly that nobody and nothing seems capable of stopping the bombing. The only, the only body that seems able to do that is, is Israel. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as if the, the, the United States, the most powerful state that's ever existed in the earth, as, as Americans keep telling us, <laughs> it's not as if the United States can stop the bombing. Um, and yet no one's saying, what's the point of the United States? Uh, or maybe people are saying that, but, 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 but they're not saying it seriously. So international law gets a bit of a hard time, really. So politics has failed, economics has failed, um, the peace movement's failed. It, it, the bombing of Gaza, the tragedy of Gaza, is a series of, of failures, and international law may be simply one of them. There are all sorts of more complicated arguments about whether international law is somehow complicit as well. Um, but, you know, we can choose to either get into that or not. I think that's really important because the mention of um, the bombing of Gaza also brings me to all these other um, humanitarian crises. Um, I'm, in particular, studying humanitarian crises and international development, and there's this call of action to bring more attention to um, the Rohingya Muslims or what's happening in Ethiopia and Tigray, which has been happening for three or four years yeah, now, yeah. Sudan, we have um, DRC, and it, it, it forces a really good question of there can be so much work with international law and international organizations, but it's the government, the government's refusal to um, somewhat disseminate or to like heal their own country. And I know it's a bit of a loaded question, um, but in your experience, um, what are some of the biggest challenges in enforcing international law concerning war crimes and the rights to you know, displaced populations? I mean. For me, I wonder, like, is it inevitable? Can change even happen? You mentioned it's somewhat paradoxical, and like the loopholes in the systems that make this so complicated to grapple. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. So, ch I mean, change can happen. Mm. Uh, I'm sounding like President Obama here, but change, <laughs> change can happen. There's no doubt, and international law can play a role in that change. So you go back to Nuremberg, the Nuremberg War Crimes trials. It's this sort of great moment in, in legal internationalism. Things must have seemed pretty grim uh, in Europe in 1945. The place was sort of falling apart. There'd been a major war. Germany was in chaos, quite violent in some, some ways. Japan was also in a terrible state. And yet these countries were rebuilt. The international order was rebuilt. And the, the leading Nazis were put on trial and, and, and punished. And there seemed to be a sort of, dare I say, cleansing of German society. German, Germany became a, a, a well-functioning, well-regarded democracy. So it's important to look back at examples of success in order to understand what international law could do. And of course, we now have a permanent international criminal court, but its record is very spotty. Uh, and one question we always forced, are forced to ask is, why are people suffering so much while we have such an advanced rule of law system? 
And I think the, 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 the important insight here is to remember not to keep going on about the global rules-based order because it's an offense to all these people who are suffering so much. You're, you're displaced peoples, you're people in the Tigray suffering from what seem like you know, really serious human rights violations possibly rising to uh, something even more, yeah. even, even, even more serious if that's possible. So um, we have to accept that there are sort of weakness, that some justice is symbolic, um, that time's running out, uh, and that we you know, have to move, move as rapidly as possible in some cases. And one way to move rapidly is through, is through government. I would say in relation to the point you made about government, though, that um, governments are highly constrained by what they can do um, because of the international environment. So it's a mixture between sort of individual government responsibility and um, international responsibility, if you like. It's, it's, it's easy to blame you know, African governments, for example, for the, the problem of, 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 of starvation, poverty, um, immiseration. But that would be a mistake in light of the, the, the legacy of colonialism or indeed recent structural adjustment programs. So you know all yeah. that. You're the international development people person. I'm talking without any expertise in this area. So, but I do think, just one last thing I would say about this is that international law has a habit of sort of dis distributing mourning in a way. So, so it, it, it gets us, and it's not just international law, but it gets us to focus on the place where there is war crimes trials or are war crimes trials taking place. So there's a relentless focus on what the ICC is doing in place A, or what international aid agencies are doing in place B, Gaza. But that kind of distributes attention away from the Tigray or the Democratic Republic of Congo. Most people just would have no idea about what's going on there, the, the depth, level, and seriousness of the human tragedies. Yeah, I mean, that's whole different conversation because I really now is drilling back into colonization <laughs> the two-parter um, and you know it, it it is so complex and for those like myself and others who want to join this field of work in this arena and try to fight this good fight to the best of our abilities I always say before I die I just want to put my spoon in the pot and do one mix I can't I can't you know make a whole bowl of soup um, but are there any personal experiences or anecdotes from your work in the field of international law and being a professor that have had this lasting impression on you as you continue to work? I would say two things to that. Um, I do agree you've just got to sort of keep striving as much as possible and not feel disillusioned by the disillusioning things that can happen around you. Um, but I would say one important thing to do as a, and I get the impression you're a bit of a kind of activist academic type, as many people are at the LSE, is to just notice what's going on around you. So yes, get active, of course, and engage with the world, and try and change it and reform it, but also notice what's happening. Notice what you're doing, what multiple, dual, double effects, even contradictory effects that might have, what other things you might do instead. Those sorts of things seem, those seem very, very important insights. And also, not to underestimate what we can do nationally, domestically. I think there's a tendency amongst us international types, you know, international development, international lawyers, and so on, to think that all of the action is global, that we're sort of global citizens, we're cosmopolitans, we believe in the universal, and so on. But I do think that that risks sort of slightly underrating 
um, what happens at the sort of base level, to go back to your point, the state, domestic politics, national politics, local politics, you know, LSE politics, the politics of the home, the politics of gender, all those sort of small sets of po politics really are so vitally important. They're almost determining in some way to put a slightly sort of Marxist feminist slant on it. But that's, I think that's really important as you move through life to just keep an eye on your own as it were, local, personal politics. It's a slightly 1960s point to make, I suppose, but that still seems important. No point in saving the world and then inflicting you know, personal cruelties on everyone around you. Not that I'm suggesting you do that, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, without a doubt, you're absolutely right. Um, and this, this mindset, like as we begin to discuss the, the career aspect, um, I'm sure has like driven you to clearly this incredible form of knowledge and professional adventures and um, within working in this like academia and international like sector is the most notable achievements in your career like what has brought you the most joy what have you um, continued to learn despite all of your amazing accolades this will sound sentimental but but my 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 most pleasurable moments by far apart from my own book launches, have been in the classrooms at the LSE or in other places I've worked, but especially here. So, you know, it's not like it happens every day. Let's not get carried away here. But, but surprisingly frequently, and it's happened this week several times, I walk out of a classroom uh, feeling a sort of unac unaccountable high from having sort of taught people who are so obviously interested in the, in the subject and to have engaged in a kind of dialogue and to, to hear questions I've never heard before despite having taught a subject for, I don't know, 15 years. So that, that, that's, that has always seemed really quite extraordinary to me. It feels to me in some ways, at, at times, it feels like the perfect job. Um, in the sense that I like writing, I like researching, I like spending time working away, but I'm not a very solitary person. Um, I like a sort of social life. So, so teaching is a, it offsets that solitude in a really good way. And then I even like the sort of administration of the department, that sort of work. I'm not as against committees as most people are because I quite like hearing what my colleagues have to say about day-to-day -day stuff and I like meeting them in committee rooms. Uh, the only thing I really don't like is Zoom. But the rest of it, the rest of it is, is marvelous. So that would be, a, I mean, that would be an obvious highlight. But I think, you know, having a book published and picking it up and staring at it for literally hours is, what, is one of the great pleasures in life. You sort of keep looking at it and you think, yeah, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. You, you, you hold it up to the light, you look at it in the mirror, you look at yourself and it in the mirror. It's, it's a remarkable thing. It's talk about a gift that keeps giving. Um, it's really quite something and I've never, I, I grew up in a very bookish culture so I've never lo lost my awe of the book as one of civilizations, you know, great achievements, a great artifact. So that's also been a really big highlight for me. I, I'm assuming that you don't own a Kindle, you? No, no. gosh, no. I don't <laughs> no even, Kindles. I don't even, I'm not even friends with people who do, so. <laughs> that's, 
I, I also am a, a fan of a physical book. I, I like to smell the pages. Exactly. What technology? It's unimprovable. It is unimprovable. Um, and you've also mentioned being social and um, enjoying this human via human connection. And for those who are interested in pursuing a career in international law or humanitarian work or within this world of trying to better the world, what advice could you give or offer um, for gaining relevant experience and trying to make a meaningful impact in this field? Well, I, I do think that the range of work that you can do um, that will help you have that kind of impact is much wider than people imagine. So I think they think of themselves as applying to the UN, you know, sending a, a self-addressed envelope to the UN, dear UN, I would like a job as an intern, or I'd like to work on the Sixth Committee, or I'd like to work on the Decolonization Committee, because I think that's the image we have as sort of activist scholars, that, that we'll work internationally and we'll work in international organizations. Uh, I think that's changing a bit. Uh, for example, in the move from the public to the private, we've obviously got used to the idea that in, in even in corporate work, but certainly in NGOs, that one can, one can make a difference. But I would be inclined to think of it more broadly even than that. So that the jobs that you think feel a bit sort of dead end uh, or not contributing to your career seem very, very important when you look back on them. I mean, I, 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 sort of, I worked, in a, I've worked in, a, in a record shop. I've worked in a tire factory. You know, as a student, I, I, I worked as a gardener for a while. And then I wrote a chapter on gardening in my Sentimental Life book. So, so you'd be surprised at the... the, the influence that has and it would be a terrible mistake if the LSE was sending students into the world straight from the LSE to the UN because that means the person will have had experience of this elite institution while they work in this elite institution mm -hmm. so it's much better that, that people sort of get a sense of what's happening on the ground to the people that after all whose lives they're trying to change so I would, I would tend to think of all jobs as being useful in that regard that's really important, this turn, this idea of getting boots on the ground and how these small aspects of your life play a bigger role in your career trajectory. And in terms of um, international law or any like, inter humanitarian emergencies and development, um, for those who want to enter the sign of work and striving or using their tools of boots on the ground um, phrase, how does that particularly address the, how can they aid in using that form of I would say, being human mm, um, mm, mm. to address the complexities or less known aspects of forced migration, displacement, mm. and war crimes, and really trying to um, improve in that area? Well, it's difficult. Mm. Uh, and I suppose we just have to remember as human beings that the effort has to be collective. You know, it's, it's hard to make much of a change yourself. Obviously, you should do all the things that I recommended earlier on in your sort of personal life and so on. Uh, not that I'm here to give recommendations to people in their personal lives, but you, you get the idea. But I, I think when we enter institutions, we just have to try to be decent people within them so that those institutions um, operate effectively in whichever field that we want to make a contribution. So I think, I think it's really, I think it's, it's vital to keep an eye on the wider politics of what you're doing, of course, but it's also important just to make your organization, your institution, your social and political circles work well and to keep chipping away incrementally at the problem because one of the problems, again, with international law, international development, I think sometimes is that we're sort of looking for great grand solutions 
to things that probably only have very slow moving. Weber said once that politics was the sort of slow boring of holes. And in a way, we have to remember that. Um, the grand scheme is not so often a success, but the small scale incremental changes can really add up to something. And I think if we remember that, we can work effectively either in the, in the sort of local sphere or in international development or in international law or at the UN or at a corporation or in a human rights organization. Absolutely. Um, and now that you've been, you've been working in academia for how long? Quite a long time. Quite a long time. What would you consider to be the most important skills that have helped you start out or some of your main challenges, especially um, working with so many bodies of students? Well, I've learned a lot from students, for a start, and, and the LSE um, has a very varied student body, so that's been enormously helpful. But I suppose what I've learned also, somebody said once about writing, that it was a bit like doing conducting foreign policy. You just have to go out and do it every day, whether you feel like it or not. So I've, I've learned that a certain degree of sort of stamina is important. You've just got to keep going, even on the days when you don't feel inspired. And you, you might inevitably feel somewhat inspired by someone um, in the workplace. So I've, I've, I've at least sort of learned that. And I've sort of learned over the years to try to remove as much of the ephemera or, 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 or you know, technological irritations from my life. And I guess I've learned to say no. Uh, I wish I'd known more about no when I was 25 or 30. I used to do a lot of stuff that wasn't really that worthwhile. Somebody would be conducting a, I don't know, a, a small seminar on the use of PowerPoint and I would trot along to it like a good citizen. And I feel that these might be wasted hours now. So I just think I'd, maybe my lesson would be take a look at that invitation and ask yourself, do you really want to go to Wales next Thursday? Or do you really need to go to the seminar on PowerPoint, whatever the current iteration is? That, 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 because time is precious, uh, really precious. Well, when you're 17, 18, you don't think of time in that way. It sort of seems to drift by as if on a summer's day, but it's, it's very, very precious and you need to organize it carefully. I absolutely agree. Um, this this phrase of time is precious. Um, my dad is also an international lawyer, and the one he always says is, uh, "The one thing in life you can never get back is time," and you're always progressing. And so, giving you've given us time, and um, to give the audience and the listeners time as well as if you could give one final piece of advice, guidance, inspiration, or hesitations um, to those who are want to start out or seeking to enter this career field, what would you say? Well, to be, to, to, to be a bit, to use one of the words you use, to be a bit hesitant. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably, from the LSE perspective, you want to hear me say, you know, be inspired, follow your dream. And all that's so true. Of course, we should do all those things. But also, we should be hesitant at times. We should ask ourselves, is this the right thing to do? Um, and sometimes the, the pressure of conformity is so powerful in the world and it's done a lot of, of damage to a certain extent. So I think that the, the word hesitancy is rather important here. We should, we should hesitate in order to try to build some time into our lives for ethical, ethical thinking and wise decision and the prudent management of our lives and the lives of others and a certain sort of ethic of care. 
So I, I would say that just stopping and, and thinking is so, so vitally important in this world where we're striving for justice, as indeed we should be. Okay, well, thank you so much um, for all of your advice, and uh, we hope the listeners will take it to, I definitely will, and um, you've given some really insightful, encouraging words, and we're just thankful for this opportunity um, to have you as a guest on our Humans of IV podcast. Any other final words? No, so no? thank you. Of course. Beautifully of course. done, yeah. Thank you. So thank you so much, Professor Gary, for being our guest on the Humans of IV podcast organized by the Department of International Development, hosted by LSC. ID Student Organizers, Careers, and Professional Development Team. Professor Gary Simpson's book on the Cold War and Mediation on Nuclearism, The Atomics, My Nuclear Family at the End of the Earth is finished. So set your alarms for a read that I know will be booming with introspection, evocation, and thought-provoking realities of the human condition. Thanks to you today, we have the opportunity to explore some of the aspects, insights, and challenges when entering the international and international law development professional arena. And we thank you so much for your humanity and relatability. It's both comforting and encouraging. I would also love to give a special thanks to our listeners, the Department of International Development, Maya Bullen, and Andrea Manio Manayo, all of the ID student organizers behind this project too, including Rosanna Huad, our co-script editor and social media creator, Valentina Papu, our co-script editor and podcast blurb writer, and Shivani, our transcript editor and podcast manager. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or your preferred platform and follow us at the LSE Department of International Development on Instagram and LinkedIn. Send us any comments, suggestions, questions, and thoughts on what you would like to hear on the International Development LinkedIn bio as we want to hear from you and stay tuned for more of the best guests as we continue exploring further insights on how to start out in the development international sector. This podcast will continue with special guests covering sectors on international organizations, government, law, NGOs, think tanks, and more. The next podcast will be a studio episode joined by LSE professor Fenwi James. Until next time, this has been your host, Michaela Amaris Levitt.